Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning as we continue to make our way through this short letter of the Apostle Paul. The main goal of the letter, Paul is calling the church to stand firm in the apostolic tradition, the the gospel teaching that the apostles are handing down. And as we continue to think about that, uh, we get now, we, we're now at a, a prayer request that Paul gives, as well as an exhortation to the church in Thessalonica. So let's read 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. Hear the word of the living and present God wherever you are scattered this morning. In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored, just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and to Christ's endurance. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that we can read your word, even as we hear a prayer request here, that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly, would run victoriously. And that's our prayer now, that your word would be honored amongst us. For the few of us who are here in this room right now, for those who are watching on video, now with us on, in a Zoom meeting and later on, we ask God that you would cause your word to be honored in our hearts. Direct our hearts to your love and to Christ's endurance. Encourage us this morning, we pray. Rebuke us, correct us, and instruct us. Train us in all righteousness that we might be competent men and women of God equipped for every good work. Lord, help Bethany Baptist Church to stand. And help us to spread the gospel and be useful for your kingdom, to play our part. Encourage and instruct us now, we ask you, by your Spirit's power, we come trembling at your word. Draw us near, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. During the L.A. riots in the early 90s, Rodney King famously said, Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? He was calling for peace, and he was calling for harmony. And that's something that all of us wanted. A lot of people made fun of it. I was in junior high at the time, and a lot of people made fun of that phrase. But we all want that as, as humans, deep down, even if we mock the way it was said. We all want to get along. We all want peace and unity. But when we look around, especially in this day and age, there is division. I think social media and the Internet just highlights, and maybe even in some ways, um, throws gas on the fire of the divisions that's already existing amongst us as humans. We want unity and peace. Even Jesus, the Messiah, said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Which means every Christian who's blessed inevitably works to make peace. That's part of God's working in their lives. We need peace. We need God's peace. And we know that human harmony will only come by God being worshipped as central. 
much like the sun in our solar system has to be central. It's the only body that has enough mass to, to keep the other planets in harmony in terms of its orbit. If you put the Earth or even Jupiter, our biggest planet, in the middle of the solar system, our solar system, it would be chaos. We need the sun to be in the center for harmony and order. In the same way, we need God to be in the center of our, of our lives in human society for the 7.75 billion people in the, on the planet today. And so we as Christians work for ultimate peace. That's what we do as peacemakers. And we know that we bring the gospel of peace as the main thing of working for peace in our lives. So the Great Commission is to gospelize and disciple our neighbors. And from there, establish churches with baptism and the Lord's Supper to call people together. And then from there, to establish a church and then spread the gospel through more gospelizing and discipling churches. And we do that to spread the gospel of peace because we need peace. God's peace. Even among churches and Christians, though, we still have division there as well. It's not like there's peace inside churches, and then outside the churches there's division and strife. Even within the church there is division. And yet Christ prayed that we would have unity. And we do have unity, actually, in Christ. We are all, if we're a true Christian from other churches, we are all truly one in Christ. And yet Paul says that we need to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So as followers of Christ, unity among churches, peace among churches ought to be important to us. Even in our church confession, the BBC Confession of Faith, we confess that, quote, Christian unity is spiritual harmony, and voluntary cooperation for common ends by various groups of Christ's people. Cooperation is desirable when the goal is justified and involves no compromise toward the word of Christ. So what do we do with other Christians? We cooperate. We work together. We don't just say we are one in Christ because we already are one in Christ. We actually work for that unity and work together in that unity to do things for Christ's glory, most especially evangelizing, discipling, and establishing churches. That's what we do. That's what the Bible calls us to do. But we may be confused on how, how we actually do this as a church. How do we, Bethany Baptist Church, the 105 members of our church, how do we work for unity? Not just within BBC. That's not quite the, the burden of this passage. How do we work for unity with other churches for the Great Commission or for the spread of the gospel? We have so many responsibilities in our home in our schools, in our workplaces. You got burdens in your own life, your relationships, your neighbors, your non-Christians that you're reaching out to, and then your church family. How do we even have time as individual members or as a church to think about partnering and cooperating with other churches to spread the gospel of peace? Well, Paul gives us that exact help here in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5. So here's the main goal, how I would summarize the main goal of this passage for Bethany Baptist Church today. Stand firm, and that's really the main goal of the whole letter, stand firm in vital gospel partnership so that the gospel spreads and so that you finish faithfully. All right, so stand firm. Stand firm in vital gospel partnership so that the gospel spreads and you finish faithfully. Now, Paul gives us in this passage three ways to crucially work for or to stand firm in gospel partnership. Three ways to stand firm in gospel partnership. The first way is by praying, so pray. The second one is by taking, taking courage. 
And the third one is by noticing. So pray, that's verses one and two. Take courage, verses three and four, and then notice in verse five. And let me, let me just say one more thing about this, the main goal before we move on. When I say stand firm in vital gospel partnership, what I mean by that is if we, when I say vital, if you lose your vitals, your life, you die. So gospel partnership is vital to life. It's vital to Christian living. It's vital to the spread of the gospel. If there is no gospel partnership, there is no spread of the gospel. The spread of the gospel dies without this vital gospel partnership. So we need to stand firm in this vital gospel partnership. So let's go the first way. First, pray for gospel partners, verses one and two. Pray for gospel partners. Look at verse one with me. In addition, brothers and sisters, so Paul's writing, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are writing to the, the saints, the members of the church in Thessalonica. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. There's the command, pray for us. And so we want to pray for gospel partners. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are asking for the prayer here. And we can, we can take this and say we need to pray for our gospel partners. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy have finished the race faithfully. They're with the Lord. We don't pray for them now, but we pray for other people who are our gospel partners, gospelizing, discipling, establishing churches, and spreading the gospel. Now, what does he want us to pray for here? Paul's very specific. Not pray for us in general. But what, is Paul's, what are Paul's prayer priorities? He gives it to us in verses one and two. Pray that the word of the Lord, so two prayer requests, that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. So the first prayer request is in praying for us, your gospel partners, pray that the word would spread rapidly and be honored. Now to, to spread rapidly, the, the literal translation is pray that the word may run, the word of the Lord may run. And the word run there has the idea of running a race, running to win, running for victory. So Paul's praying that the gospel would spread, run around the world as the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. But with the idea of run, it's even a competition. Pray that the gospel would spread in a race and win. Pray that the gospel would run and win. The word of the Lord would run and win. Like an athlete competing to win a competition. Now, I pray regularly in these last few days, weeks, maybe not regularly. I pray for the Lakers to win the NBA championship. That's why I'm wearing this shirt this morning. I pray for it. And I ask other people to pray for it. I even publicly tweet about it. I, I put on Facebook and a pastor rebuked me and said, you ought not to ask people to pray for these things. But I do. I pray for them to win a championship. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. That's what I pray. Okay, I pray that, and I, I want them not to just compete. I'm not just glad they're in the playoffs. I want them to win because I identify, as many of you know, as a Laker fan, as Laker Nation. I'm part of Laker Nation, as they say. And so I find my joy tied to their victory in the same way that is infinitely more important than the Lakers winning a championship is that the gospel would win, that the gospel would run like a, like a competitor and win. It would, defeat, it, would, it would accomplish its purpose, win against Satan, sin, and evil, and the things that would bind people from believing the gospel and God saving his elect. And so Paul says, that's your team. Your team is the gospel, and you want the gospel. And so pray that the gospel wins. Pray that it spreads rapidly. Pray that it, it runs uh, quickly and defeats its enemies. Why? Because this holy message 
represents us as the holy nation. And so we identify as the holy nation with this holy message. And so it's our passion, our prayer, our desire that the gospel would win, that it would run and defeat its, its competitors who are running against it. Now, the difference for us in this prayer versus praying for the Lakers, there's a lot of differences, namely importance. But um, another difference is that we know the gospel will win. Okay, we know the gospel will win. So, but, but yet Paul still tells us to pray for it. So even though we know the gospel will win, its ultimate victory is secure, its penultimate victories are not necessarily secure. Will the gospel win in Bethany Baptist Church as, the, as new members come? Will it win in the lives of each of our members when we're doing church discipline? Will it win in Los Angeles as we continue to share the gospel with other people here? Will it win among the unreached people groups who still need to hear the gospel? Well, we know it will win, but when will it win? Will it win with the missionaries who are there on the field today, who are sharing the gospel today? Well, Paul tells us to pray. Pray for it, because it's vital. It will win in the end, but prayer is part of the vital key, part of God's predetermined means for that vital end, or for that end to be secure. So prayer is part of God's plan. It's not God's plan just that, that the gospel would win in the end. It's God's plan that you would pray before it wins in the end, and God would answer those prayers for its victory. So pray that the gospel would win. But secondly, the second prayer request is, and that the word of the Lord will not only win, run rapidly, but be honored. That the word of the Lord would be honored. The gospel is honored when it is trusted as glorious and honorable. It really, I mean, a little translation here would be, pray that the, gospel, the word of the Lord will be glorified. And it will be glorified when you recognize the word's glory, the word of the Lord's glory. So when you hear the gospel, non-Christian hears the gospel, a Christian or a would-be Christian hears the gospel. When they hear it, a non-Christian, they don't see the glory of God in it. They don't see God's goodness in it. They don't see God's mercy. They don't see eternal joy and flourishing in it. And so the word is not honored among them. But when you hear the word of the Lord, for it to be honored is for it to be valued properly. And that's why Paul says, pray that the Lord would be honored as we spread the gospel just as it was with you. The word of God was honored with you in Thessalonica. Contrary to chapter 1, verse 8, there are those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, according to 1.8. In 2.10, chapter 2, verse 10, it says that those who are perishing do not accept the love of the truth. And so be saved. And then in verse 12, it says, they did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. Delighting in unrighteousness and not believing the truth is not honoring the word of the Lord. Their disbelief, their doubt, their rejection of the gospel does not honor it. Unlike the Thessalonians, where it says in chapter 1, verse 10, that they believed the message. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16. Just go back a page or two to the previous letter. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 says this. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you Thessalonians received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is the word of God, which also works effectively in all who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and the prophets and persecuted us. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone. So here, Paul's saying, when you heard the word of the Lord from us, you received it, and not only did you receive it as God's word, which it was, which it is, but you were even willing to suffer for it. 
What do you suffer for? What do you find valuable? What do you find honorable? What do you find truly glorious? And Paul's prayer is that the word of God would be glorified, the word of the Lord, the gospel would be so glorious to people that they're willing to suffer for it, reorient their life direction for it, face opposition, cold relationships, awkward conversations, jail for the word of the Lord. If you look at Acts 17, verses 1 through 4, this is where 1 through 10 is really the 1 through, yeah, 1 through 10 is the story of the Thessalonians, the planting of the church. But let me just show you or read to you how they received it. So Paul went into the synagogue as he normally did for three Sabbaths, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. He said, quote, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. End quote. That is the word of the Lord. And then here's their response. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, Silvanus, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. So what did they do? Paul's preaching three Saturdays in a synagogue, and some, including God-fearing Greeks and women, received the word of the Lord, and they honored it. A lot of people rejected it, as if you read on, and they'll reject Paul, but a lot of people honored it. And that's how it was with them. That's how it was with you. Do you remember how the word of the Lord was honored when you received it and trusted in Jesus? We're having a members meeting, Lord willing, this evening. Two of the prospective members came to the Lord and honored the word of the Lord by hearing the gospel through sermons online. Two grew up hearing the gospel in a Christian home, and they got saved sometime in their childhood hearing the gospel all the time before junior high. Another one honored the gospel after hearing it from his youth pastor. Many of you know my story that I heard it from my pastor's daughter who was maybe 16 years older than me. I'm nine years old and she's 25 or so and she comes in the room and shares Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 with me and other kids. And when I heard the gospel as a child, I was given, in that moment, I was given a sense that Jesus died for me and that he saved me and that I did not have to work for my salvation. And I was given a sense of peace. And I was also given a willingness there as a little kid. I was given a willingness in that moment to do whatever God wanted me to do. I just felt like, okay, Lord, whatever you want me to do. It felt like, it didn't feel like a burden. It felt like freedom. I'm down, Lord. Whatever you want me to do, I'm down. That is God opening my heart and then giving me the word. And then when we hear the word, we're honoring it. So pray that what happened to you when you heard the gospel Pray that for your, for your gospel partners as they gospelize and disciple others, that the word of the Lord would be honored among others as they spread the message. If you're not a Christian, let me make clear what Paul says here when he says Jesus is the Messiah, which is the word of the Lord. The Lord is Jesus. So it's the word or the message of Jesus. So if you're not a Christian and you don't hear anything else we talk about here, understand, please understand the main message of Christianity. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's son who came into this world. God the son became a man and died, lived the life we should have lived. He died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead. Now he died for sins because we're sinners and we're evil. And the penalty for sin is eternal death in hell forever. And sin is a big deal because God is holy and righteous and God created us. And so we rebelled against him and we are accountable to God, our creator. And so if we do not submit to and and rejoice in and entrust ourselves to, to god this creator but rebel against him we deserve damnation jesus was damned for us the messiah the anointed one of god was damned for us he rose from the dead so that if you and i if any of us 
repent from our sins, turn from our sins and turn from our righteousness and trust in Jesus as our savior, as our master, as our king, as our treasure, we will be saved. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So please, if you're not a Christian, call on Jesus to save you. Even where you are right now, you can call on him to save you and he will do so. If that's not clear to you yet, or you have other questions, or you want to talk about it more, feel free to email uh, the church, info at bethanybaptist.church, or contact other members of Bethany Baptist Church that you might know. But let's pray, Christians, that the word of the Lord would, be, would, would win and spread rapidly and be honored. But that, there's a second prayer request in verse 2. Look at verse 2. So pray for gospel partners that the word of the Lord would be honored. And pray for gospel partners, verse 2, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. Pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. What does he mean by being delivered from wicked and evil people? I mean, Paul willingly, I'm, I'm doing my devotions right now in the book of Acts. I just got through um, the early 20s where Paul, where, where people are pleading in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Spirit has told me if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound in chains. This is what's going to happen to, to the one who goes to Jerusalem, who owns this belt. And so they're prophesying, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. And Paul says, and so they're pleading with Paul not to go. And Paul's saying, stop breaking my heart. I'm going to go wherever God wants me to go. I need to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul is willing to go to Jerusalem where there are wicked and evil people who are going to persecute him. So why is Paul praying, deliver us from it when he's walking straight into it? Why would Paul pray that? Paul's prayer here is not that he would be delivered from harm. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, um, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, that's not Paul's main concern. He doesn't mind praying against harm. We, should, we could pray that people won't be harmed. But that's not Paul's main prayer. His main prayer is that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly, even if that means suffering. His prayer here is that he would be delivered from wicked and evil people, specifically so that, the first prayer request, so that the gospel would win, so that the gospel would spread, would happen. He's not ultimately praying for his safety. Pray for my safety, fine. But pray that when I go to spread the gospel, that the people who are trying to stop me don't stop the gospel that I'm bringing to spread, okay? You could get a picture of this from 1 Timothy 4, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. So he hurt Paul. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself because he strongly opposed, not us, he strongly opposed our words, the word of the Lord. And pray that we would be delivered from his agenda to stop the word of the Lord from spreading. Actually, it would have been fresh in the minds of the Thessalonians. If you read Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, and you see about the, that, those first three weeks of the planting of the church, if you read that, what happened after those three Sabbaths is that they incited a riot in Thessalonica. The Jews did. And there was a riot, and they tried to stop Paul from preaching that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the Messiah of the world. That's what they did. And so Paul's prayer here is that they would be delivered from wicked and evil people who are seeking to stop Paul, and more importantly for Paul and for us, Paul's message, the gospel. And why do people try to stop the gospel? It says here, for not all have faith. Even those within the community, the covenant community, 
Even some within the church don't have faith, which is why if you go to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul's going to talk about church discipline because some might not actually be believers in the church. But whether inside the church or outside the church, people will try to stop the gospel and stop gospel people. And so our prayer for our gospel workers, our gospel partners, is that they would be delivered from evil and wicked men so that the gospel would win. There are 10 million people in Los Angeles County. 18 million in the metro Los Angeles area. There are 1.3 or 1.4 million people in southeast LA, Bellflower, Cerritos, Downey, this area right, be, right on the, the southeast edge of LA bordering uh, Orange County. 1.3 million or more. And we need the gospel to spread. We ought to pray for our gospel partners to spread the gospel here. Not to mention the fact that there are 3 billion people, over 3 billion people, among the 7.75 billion in the world who are part of unreached people groups where they have either zero or very little access to the gospel. And they are dying without Jesus. Most of them without even hearing about Jesus. Going to hell. And so what can we do? I mean, what can I do? What power do I have? What, what can we do as a church? We're only 105 members. What can we do? We can pray. We can pray together every week. We can pray at home. We can pray as... We can pray... We, we weak Christians, this weak, powerless church, can pray to the almighty, all-powerful God that the word of the Lord would run victoriously. We don't have the power to do it, but we have a father who has the power to do it. We have a father who's prompting us and instructing us and calling us to pray to him so that he would do it. It's not a coincidence that we are weak and God is strong. It's not a coincidence that God is calling us weaklings to pray to the mighty Father in heaven, that his mighty word would triumph. It's not coincidence, it's design. So brothers and sisters, pray. Your prayers are not useless. Don't let your sovereignty of God and God fulfilling all his plans doctrine to be used by the demons to make you pray less. It ought to empower you to pray more because your prayer is also part of God's sovereign design and plan for the finished work. So go to imb.org and pray for missionaries. Go to icommittopray.com perhaps and pray for the persecuted church who, is, who, are being hindered by the, who are being hindered by wicked and evil people. We know God will fulfill his promise to save people from every family of the earth as he promised Abraham in Genesis 12. Revelation 7, 9, people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will worship the lamb before the throne. So we know the end is secure, but we also know the end is secure because Christians like you and I are praying for our gospel partners in the meantime. It's part of God's plan. If Christians don't pray for the word of the Lord, and if Christians don't partner with gospel partners, churches don't partner with gospel partners, the gospel won't spread. It depends on it by God's design. So pray, brothers and sisters, and pray together with us on Sundays. Sunday nights is what we typically do for our prayer gathering. We might move prayer sometimes to a prayer Zoom meeting in the morning and make our evening, our only Sunday gathering, our evening gathering, a main, our main time of feeding. We'll see as weeks go forward, but either way, commit to praying with the church regularly. So stand firm in vital gospel partnership
so that the gospel spreads and you finish faithfully. Paul tells us to do that by praying, but the second way to do it is by taking courage in God's faithfulness toward you. Take courage in God's faithfulness toward you. This will help you stand firm in gospel partnership. Look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. That's sweet. We just need to hear that again. The Lord is faithful. Paul wants him to continue to stand firm in the gospel and as a result to stand firm in gospel partnership based on God's faithfulness. He wants the faithfulness of God to empower us. And we want God's faithfulness to empower us today. I can think of some members of my former church who are no longer standing firm in the gospel. And that breaks my heart as I think about their names, see their faces, reach out to them and try to ask how they're doing. When they go astray, it's heartbreaking. When a church goes astray, when a local church goes astray, it's devastating. And every local church can go astray. So Paul encourages them to stand firm here by saying, God is faithful. What does it mean that God is faithful? It means that God will be and do all that God says he will be and do. No more and no less. God will be and God will do what he says he will be and what he will do. No more or no less. And therefore, because he's faithful to that, you can put your faith in him. Or another, another way of saying faithful, to say God is faithful, is to say God is trustworthy. He is worthy of your trust because he will always be and do what he says he will always be and do. He can be trusted. He ought to be trusted because he alone is fully trustworthy. And the reason why God is trustworthy is because God is faithful or trustworthy, first of all, first and foremost, to himself. Before God is faithful to Bethany Baptist Church and to his church around the world, God is faithful to himself. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, it says this. The saying is trustworthy. So here's the saying is faithful. What's a, what's a faithful saying? If we died with Jesus, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But listen to this. If we deny him, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, if we deny him, if we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God will damn you if you deny him. He'll deny you if you deny him. He'll be faithful to judge you if you are faithless towards him. Because God is first and foremost faithful to himself. He cannot and will not deny himself. And because of that, God is consistent. God is reliable. You can trust what God will say and do for you, for our church, for the nations, for our neighbors, for your family. You can trust God because God cannot deny himself. God is faithful. And what is he faithful to do according to chapter 3? Of Second Thessalonians. God is faithful to do what? Two things in verse 3. He will strengthen you and he will guard you from the evil one. You see that there in verse 3? He will strengthen you and he will guard you from the evil one. What does it mean that he will strengthen you? This means when you feel weak spiritually and you cannot stand firm in the apostolic tradition, you can't stand firm in the gospel, you can't stand firm in the gospel partnership, God will give you strength. God will strengthen you. Are you struggling in your Christian life? 
That's an easy question to answer. And there's another easy question to answer. Do you feel like you're always struggling or often struggling in your Christian life? I remember sharing, you know, in accountability, we share, we share life, share Jesus, talk about life and struggles. And it's, it's very easy to say, oh, how are you doing spiritually? I'm struggling. And I used to, in self-righteousness and in just being immature, somewhat roll my eyes. Oh, of course you're struggling. That's, that's an easy answer to say. But it's the right answer to say almost all the time. We struggle because we're weak. We struggle because we don't have strength. And that's okay. You don't have to be strong in and of yourself. In a sense, you never will be strong enough to fight sin, Satan, the flesh, and worldliness. As the temptations of this world and the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of yourself presses in on you. You're just not strong enough to hold all of it up. You can't do it. I can't do it. God is faithful to strengthen you. You will struggle on your own because you can't carry it. You can't lift it. That's design. That's your finitude and your sinfulness and your neediness. And God loves to supply our needs. We need strength. God is faithful to strengthen us. And God is not going to strengthen you today and give you one dose of strength for the next 10 years of your life. He will not do it like that. He doesn't do it like that. He will give you strength for the next moment. God's mercies are new every morning. He doesn't give you 10, uh, uh, 10, 10 years worth of mercies today. He'll give you today's mercies for today. And you'll struggle. And tomorrow you'll feel the struggle. Lord, I need new mercies today. And the Lord is faithful. He'll strengthen you again tomorrow and the next day. So God is faithful to strengthen us because we're weak. But God is also faithful, according to verse 3, to guard you from the evil one. To guard you from the evil one. Now, how does God guard us? Who is the evil one? The evil one is Satan, the deceiver, the serpent. And he has many demons, fallen angels, who do his bidding and tempt and terrorize and attack and usurp and distract and distort um, humans all around the world, including Christians and churches, members of churches, keeping people, Christians, from becoming members of churches, pastors. Demons are active and busy at work. And God is faithful to guard you from the evil one and his agenda, even through his demons. How does God do that? How does God guard us faithfully from the evil one? Well, he does it in a few ways, at least from this passage. He does it through the gospel and gospel teaching. Why do you say that? It doesn't say he does it through the gospel. Because Paul's writing this letter. This letter is one of the ways of guarding them from being deluded by the fact that maybe Christ already came, right? This, this, this very letter is one of the ways that God is guarding them from the evil one by giving them the truth. And then God guards us through prayer. Paul said in the previous verse, uh, um, previous passage, which we covered in last week's sermon, that Paul prays for them and he ought to thank God for them and he prays for them because God guards us through answering prayers for us that other people pray for us. So God guards you from the, through the word. God guards you through prayers, the prayers of other people praying for you to be guarded to the end. And even if you go to, I'm just taking, taking the way God guards us from this, this letter, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15, God guards us through church discipline. He's going to tell them to um, take note of a person and disassociate from someone who is unrepentant. So God guards you through church membership and through church accountability, through meaningful friendships and accountability in the church, mutual responsibility, as we say. So God is faithful to guard you from the evil one. 
Now notice this. Being guarded from the evil one or being protected from the evil one is not being protected from evil people who might hinder you temporarily. Paul's praying for protection from evil people, but he might be delivered to evil people. But protection from the evil one is an ultimate type of prayer request. Sometimes you'll be delivered from evil people, sometimes you won't. But Paul's prayer or Paul's, um, Paul's claim is that God is faithful to protect you from the evil one so that you won't ultimately fail. Now, Jesus taught us to pray this in the disciples' prayer, didn't he? The Lord's prayer. Um, what does he say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus taught us to pray that. Not only did Jesus teach us to pray that, Jesus prayed that himself for Peter and the rest of the disciples, except for Judas in Luke 22, 31 to 34. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. What is Jesus praying there? Not that Peter wouldn't fail, but that he wouldn't finally fail, that his faith wouldn't fail. That as Satan sought to sift him like wheat, to shake him up, Jesus' prayer was that Peter's faith would not fail, that he would be ultimately guarded from the evil one. And that's what Paul is telling us. If you're a true Christian, you will be guarded from the evil one. Satan cannot get at you, ultimately. He can tempt you. He can push you down for a little bit, like he did Peter. Peter failed miserably. But at the end of the day, God will guard you and deliver you from the evil one. You will be finally saved if you're a true Christian. And that's good news. God is faithful to guard you. Kids, I want to encourage you. God is faithful to strengthen you and guard you if you trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. If you've already trusted in Jesus and turned from your sins, as a kid, you might say, I can't wait till I get older. I feel like I can't do anything. I, I have to listen to my parents when I have to go to sleep. I can't drive. I can't do anything. God will strengthen you. God will guard you from the evil one. Keep growing in Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep meditating on the word of the Lord. And God will be faithful to strengthen you and to guard you from the evil one. Now, look at verse 4. Paul says, because of this, or he doesn't say because of this, but just continuing the, the, the flow of thought, if God is faithful, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Paul is confident in every one of the members that God will do and continue to do, or that they will continue to do what Paul commands. Someone asked when we were doing our Bible reading this week, should we be confident about other members of the church? Because we're sinners and members fail. Should we be confident in the, should you, BBC member, should you be confident in the other 104 members that they will do and continue to do what the Lord commands? Should you be confident about it? Yes or no? What do you guys think? Those who are here. If you're, on, if you're watching on Zoom, put it in the chat. What do you think? Should you be confident? Okay, I got your answer. What's your answer? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, I think you should be confident. Paul here is confident in the Lord about them. Now, he's not confident as if no one could fall away or be disciplined out of the church. Just read the, next, just read the rest of this chapter, right? But the, the general default is he assumes that if you're a Christian, you will obey and you will continue to obey. So here's an application for us. So here's what God is directing us to do. Let us, brothers and sisters, raise our expectations that each church member has. I mean, you should expect every church member to obey Jesus and continue to obey Jesus. Not perfectly, but truly and increasingly. When I, when I call one of you church members, I'm not, I think we're used to being skeptical of each other and cynical of each other. They're like, uh, you know, like we shouldn't assume that they're going to obey. 
No, I think you should assume they're going to obey. Let them disprove that by their unrepentance and faithlessness. I mean, if someone joins Bethany Baptist Church, I mean, we're not the only church that does this, but there's a lot of churches that don't do this. If someone is, is going to say, I believe in Jesus, and they're crazy enough to join a church like BBC, among the many churches in LA, where, um, where we make the expectation of obedience, of obedience clear, and that we will hold each other accountable and even excommunicate you, or you might excommunicate others, if they refuse to repent and follow Jesus, and someone gets all of that and they say, I still want to join BBC. I agree with the Confession of Faith. I agree with the Church Covenant. Sign me up. Have a vote for me. Please let me come in. I want to publicly say I want to commit to this church. If someone's crazy enough, crazy enough, to do that, I'm going to assume that God is working in them and that the gospel is working in them. And so if I, if I call them to repent, if I command them with God's word to do something, I expect that God is already working in them or else they wouldn't be a member. And so I expect that they will continue to do what God says. Paul is confident in God's faithfulness in them that they will obey and continue to obey what is commanded. And you, brothers and sisters, ought to be confident in one another. Expect obedience from each other. Expect obedience from each other. So, brothers and sisters, let's move forward with trust in God's faithfulness and God's faithful providence. Where today is God calling us as a church to stand firm in the gospel? And where today is God calling you as a Christian or your fellow church members to stand firm in the gospel? Where's God commanding us to obey him? In what relationships and situations is God commanding you? Is God specifically commanding you to obey him? Brothers, obey him. Sisters, obey him. And expect obedience from each other. I can tell you for our church, I can tell you very generally what God is calling our church to do. God is calling BBC to stand together and to stand firm in Jesus and for Jesus in Los Angeles. God is calling us as a church family to engage our neighbors here in Southeast Los Angeles, to support each other as we engage our neighbors, to support each other as, as we um, grow each other in Christ. And God is calling us as a church to send out our members and some leaders from our church to plant and revitalize other churches. To, as we transfer members out today in our members meeting, Lord willing, we're going to transfer two other members out to another church, another gospel preaching church in our area. That's our ministry. That's part of what God is telling us to do, to obey him in being faithful members, holding each other faithfully, transferring members out faithfully as we disciple them here for a season, and then send them off to the next church that God is calling them to continue to spread his word rapidly. That's what we do. That's what we're supposed to be doing as a church. So take our collective responsibility seriously because that's part of our calling as members of BBC. All right, so let's stand firm in vital gospel partnership. That's the main goal. Stand firm in vital gospel partnership so that the gospel spreads and so that you finish faithfully. And it is vital that you pray. It's vital that you take courage in God's faithfulness toward you. That is necessary for the spread of the gospel. And thirdly, Pray, take courage, and thirdly, notice. What should we notice? Look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. So here's Paul, not quite praying, but pronouncing another blessing. So he's not praying to God, but he's saying, he's saying, he's talking to you and he's saying, may the Lord 
encourage your hearts, or may the Lord um, direct your hearts to God's love, and may the Lord direct your hearts to Christ's endurance. So what should we notice? We're not the ones blessing, we're the ones being blessed. Paul is pronouncing the blessing on this people. So what should we notice? Notice God directing your heart to God's love and Christ's endurance. Do you notice God directing your heart to God's love and Christ's endurance? Do you notice God removing obstacles in your life so that you could, so that your heart can be connected to his love and Christ's endurance? That's what God does. God directs our hearts to to his love and to Christ's endurance. What is God's love here? Well, we we get a a glimpse of God's love if you just go back to chapter 2, verse 16. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us, and here's a little glimpse on that love, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace. So God's love is at least connected to the fact that God gives us eternal encouragement. Not just encouragement for today, but eternal encouragement and good hope by grace. God loves you so that he gives you eternal encouragement. And that eternal encouragement comes in eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere, Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us. He proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast is this love beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. That's a picture of the depth of God's love. Do you notice God directing your heart to that love? That propitiatory, wrath-bearing, sinner-saving, curse-reversing love? May the Lord direct your heart. Notice God directing your heart towards his love. But also notice, if God is working, and you notice that God directs your heart also to Christ's endurance. Now, it's not clear whether this is Christ's endurance as a model for Christians or Christ's endurance imparted to us or the endurance um, imparted to us by Christ. It could go either way in terms of the wording. I think it's Christ's endurance as a motivation and model for our endurance. So it's not, may God direct you to the fact that Christ will help you endure. That's true. And that's biblically true. And maybe that might be what it's being, it's what's being said here. But I think it's saying, may the Lord direct our hearts to the fact that Christ has endured for us. That motivates us. That's, that's parallel to God's love for us in Christ. That, that Christ endured the pain. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of God. And he, that motivates us to live by faith. And it is a model for us on how to endure as well, so that we stand firm in the gospel and stand firm in gospel partnership. The ministry of edification, which is your ministry to each other, and actually your ministry to non-Christians as well, your ministry, your word ministry to other people is often this, helping others see what is already there, even though they can't see it. You, have, you are all optomet- optometrists. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, whoever helps people see. <laughs> you all have an eye ministry of helping people see what is actually there. It's directing the hearts of those you talk to toward God's love and toward Christ's endurance. 
because their hearts are disconnected from God's love and Christ's endurance. So your word ministry to them is to, to say something to them, gospelize them, such that you're reconnecting, if they're Christian and if they're not Christian, you are initially connecting their hearts to God's love and to Christ's endurance. That's what ministry is. That's how transformation happens. One time, two, to th- two or three years ago, um, I hit a rough patch in my marriage um, because we were in a city group meeting, and we actually, Francis and I got in an argument in the city group meeting, in front of all our city group, which is the way it should be, right? Um, just so we could all be held accountable, other people were speaking into our lives. But we got into an argument, and at the, at the core, I was really hurt and angry because I thought she wasn't leaning in. She wasn't leaning into me to trust my, my leadership and my ministry decisions, particularly for BBC. And we're talking about it among the whole city group. It's embarrassing for me to say this out loud that I think that Francis is not leaning in to trust me for ministry decisions. But that's what I thought. And I was angry. I was hurt. I was mad. And as we talked that night in a very emotional conversation, long conversation, I just was so confident that I was right and she was wrong. And um, there were tears there. And we slept. And I think the next day in my devotions... God directed my heart to his love. And here's how God did it. God directed me to the fact that it wasn't Francis's failure in this situation. It was my failure. And it was a big failure, actually. This is what, I don't know, maybe you're 12 in our marriage, you're 13 in our marriage. And in this fight, I realized that the reason Francis doesn't lean into me in these conversations is because I'm so short, I'm so immature and impatient that when she wouldn't, when she'd show even the least resistance, I would shut down and not explain to her or convince her of why what I thought was wisest. And I would just get more and more frustrated every time she would just show any questioning of, of my direction. And so her spring-loaded leaning away from me rather than leaning towards me in year 12 is because somewhere around year five or year four of our marriage, I stopped trying to reason with her. And I wasn't loving her or honoring the Lord in my leadership of her. And so I started realizing that this fight in the moment, I thought, in this fight, I thought, my problem is her, that she doesn't trust me. That's the problem. And that wasn't the problem. The problem was that I was not connected, that God was showing me, that God was loving me in the fact that I wasn't leading her well and loving God faithfully in the way I was leading her. And I was being immature and impatient and petty. Or not petty, just I was, I was blind to my big blemish. And so the point here is um, God loves us, and oftentimes our hearts get disconnected until God shows us. He directs our hearts back to him, that he does love us in Christ, that he does want us to grow in Christ. And so ministry is directing people's hearts and eyes to the love of God and the endurance of Christ that they already are so deeply immersed in. Right? When we do baptisms right here behind me and we immerse you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are so deeply immersed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that symbolizes that your whole life is enveloped. It's all immersed in the triune God's holy love for one another. And you're immersed in that love. God's love is surrounding you all the time. We don't feel it. We're, our hearts are disconnected from it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's there. And so often, our biggest problem is not the problem on the outside. It's the problem on the inside. Our problem is not the things that are happening to us. It's what's happening in us. 
as the things are happening to us. So may the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. I want you, and the call here is, brothers and sisters, I want you to notice when God is directing your hearts to his love and to Christ's endurance. And don't resist it. Receive it. Pray for more of it. The challenge here is to strengthen, the challenge here um, to strengthen your standing in the gospel partnership is for you to notice God's love in your trials. God is working in you. God is, I say that present tense, God is right now, currently loving you. Christ's endurance is empowering and is sustaining you right now. May the Lord direct your hearts toward it. So I close here with the main goal stated one more time. Stand firm in vital gospel partnership so that the gospel spreads and you finish faithfully. Stand firm by praying. Stand firm by taking courage. And stand firm by noticing God's work in your heart. Now, if we're honest, we often fail to pray for gospel partners. We just pray for ourselves. Sometimes we just pray for our family. If our hearts are big enough, we'll pray for other members in our church. But we fail to pray for gospel partners outside of our church. We allow ourselves to be discouraged by our discouragement, as we talked about last Sunday, to the point of excusing ourselves from faithful obedience. And we frequently overlook God's love and Christ's endurance that is present in our lives right now. And the result of all this is sin in our lives. And because of that, we deserve God's judgment and wrath. We deserve to be devoured by the evil one, to be given over from the evil one, not guarded from him. And yet God is faithful to guard us from the evil one. Why? God is faithful to guard us from the evil one because God was faithful to not guard Jesus from evil people and from the evil one's plot for Jesus to be murdered unjustly on the cross. Furthermore, God was faithful to justify the many by pouring out his judgment on his son on the cross. God will faithfully strengthen us and guard us from the evil one because God faithfully judged and abandoned his son on the cross or forsook him on the cross, if you like the King James Version. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? God faithfully judged and abandoned his son on the cross as Jesus chose to die for his people. And, G and here's the good news and the thing that secures it all and why we meet this first day of the week. And Jesus rose from the dead, confirming and securing all of God's faithful promises to us. Jesus secured that in his resurrection. God told Jesus no when Jesus prayed to be delivered to find another way for the cup to be passed from him. God told Jesus no. He would not be protected and guarded so that he would tell us yes. We would be protected. We would be guarded. And now we know that God will be faithful to us. He will strengthen you. He will guard you. He will move you to continual obedience and he will direct your heart to his love and to Christ's endurance again and again and again. God will be faithful to answer our prayers and let the gospel spread and for our gospel partners to be delivered from evil people and for our gospel partners to finish their course. God will work. The gospel will win. God will use you. God will use me. God calls us now and empowers us to participate as vital partners in the great gospel work. Brother, sister, you have a vital role to play in the spread of the gospel and in the victory of the gospel, even partially through Bethany Baptist Church. Can't we all just get along? Can we? Can we all get along? Only by God's grace and his word spreading and then through the incarnate word returning. We won't perfectly get along in cooperation and partnership until Christ returns. And the gospel won't spread finally and fully, completely until Christ returns. But for now, 
as a church and as good human citizens, let's be peacemakers, spreading the gospel, not only in our church, but by partnering with other churches, for the other churches and for the sake of the world. So brothers and sisters, pray for gospel partners. Take courage in God's faithfulness to help you stand. And notice God directing your heart regularly and repeatedly to his love so that you stand firm to the end and so that the gospel spreads rapidly to final victory. Let's pray. Father, direct our hearts to your love and Christ's endurance. We pray for other, other missionaries. Since this is a recording, Lord, we won't pray by specifics, but we pray, Lord, for the missionaries we support in this church, other missionaries we pray for. We ask that the gospel would spread rapidly and that you would protect them from evil and wicked people who seek to harm them and especially who seek to stop the gospel from spreading. Father, we ask that you'd help us to take courage in your faithfulness towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.